You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. This is Angie from All Creatures Podcast. As a transplant to Florida, moving here about 10 years ago, the interview today is very near and dear to my heart. I'm extremely excited to be talking with wildlife photographer, National Geographic explorer, conservationist, and author Carlton Ward Jr., who will be sharing tales of his long journey trekking through the wildlands of Florida and tracking the endangered Florida panther. Carlton is also the founder of Florida Wildlife Corridor Project and has recently written a visually stunning book called The Path of the Panther, New Hope for Wild Florida. So I'm really excited to introduce Carlton to you today and talk all about Florida wildlands, panthers, corridors, and of course, conservation. So welcome, Carlton. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks, Angie. Appreciate the chance to talk to you today. I know you're another Florida native, and that's why uh, when we reached out to your team, I was so excited that you agreed to do this interview because this project has been near and dear to my heart, and it's all this is happening. Florida is a big state, so somewhat in my backyard, but hopefully today uh, for our non-Floridians and even our listeners that aren't in the U.S., we will generate a lot of enthusiasm and interest in Florida, the subtropical, beautiful wildlands, and of course, the species that call Florida their home. So before we get started and we dive into all your conservation work throughout the years, your photography, and of course, your new book, do you mind telling me a little bit about yourself, what your background is, and were you always a nature lover? Was there an aha moment when you're like, I want to trek through thousands of miles in Florida looking for wildlife? I'd say the idea of trekking a thousand miles in Florida definitely snuck up on me. I grew up on the Gulf Coast in Clearwater and kind of one foot on the coast in the suburbs and also one foot in the heartland because I'm an eighth generation Floridian on my dad's side and have lots of cousins who are full-time Florida cattle ranchers and we still have a small cow-calf operation in our family which kept me connected to a bit of a deeper heritage in Florida's interior. You know, and growing up in Clearwater, that's Pinellas County, it's the most densely populated county in the Southeast. And I I really experienced a tale of two Floridas where there was literally no green space left in in, in where I grew up, it's set for places inconvenient to develop out on the barrier islands, which happen to become the few state parks that we have. And then contrast that to the wide open frontier through Florida's heartland and what we now call the Florida Wildlife Corridor. So I think living between those two worlds made me sensitive to how fast we could lose things and how much we still had a chance to save. Uh, And and so you spent time at the University of Florida, too. We were talking before the interview started about how you were interested in a lot of different things, which if you would mind touching on that a little bit, because a lot of students reach out to me and they're like, I don't know exactly what I want to do. So if you maybe want to share your journey with how, uh, how you got started. Sure. <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll try to save some time to talk about Panthers because this could be a long story. But I 
Um, I went off to college not knowing what I was going to study. I mean, I, I did undergraduate at Wake Forest University in North Carolina and thought I was going to study physics and go into engineering or study business and go to law school. Then I took biology and anthropology as kind of distribution requirements, and it really, really clicked, and it changed the way I saw the world. I started to kind of question this baked-in notion of progress that a lot of us grow up with and started to see both the cultural and ecological cost of a lot of our decisions. So I, I, I kind of, I guess, awakened my inter-environmentalist I kind of awakened my inner environmentalist by um, starting to see these global trends. And about the same time, I was kind of gravitating towards a major in biology and a minor in anthropology. I also picked up a camera and I was studying abroad in Australia and just documenting my journey. But I really got into the craft of communicating with pictures and came back to campus like frothing for opportunity as a photographer and ended up shooting NCAA sports and working for the school yearbook and newspaper and just kind of shooting everything I could. Um, but all along I'm studying biology. I added an environmental science minor and started to get excited about the convergence of photojournalism and conservation. You know, so much to the point that I was kind of really confused coming out of a liberal arts school because they didn't have a photography program. They didn't have a journalism program. So I was trying to figure out what I could make of these passions. I had a great opportunity to intern at the Smithsonian Institution in DC straight out of undergraduate where I was in the National Museum of Natural History. And I was basically scanning slides. This is circa 1998 and we are digitizing the slide library for the biodiversity programs and other groups. But I was at this intersection of science and exploration and photography and attending lectures all over the place and meeting all these interesting scientists coming in from around the world and ended up having two subsequent internships with the Smithsonian, the third of which took me to Central Africa, to the country of Gabon. Wow, yeah. And, and so this is like a lifetime opportunity for an up-and-coming photographer. I, it, about the same time, I had started my master's degree in ecology with an emphasis in photojournalism back in your hometown of the University of Florida in Gainesville. And with this chance to work, first as an intern in Gabon, I was going to a country that was 80% covered in rainforest, ecosystems largely intact, elephants that come down to the beach, gorillas and chimpanzees and coastal forest, you know, teeming with life. And this international group of scientists studying the herpafauna, the, the small mammals, the, all the bird life. And I was just there kind of documenting and photographing what they were doing. That turned into seven different expeditions across three years and kind of jump-started my career. I published my first book called The Edge of Africa with the Smithsonian in the end of 2003 and had my first national magazine stories and was really starting to understand the way that photography could provide an amplification and a, and a voice for otherwise somewhat obscure science. Yeah. And that, and that became the template of my career ever since. And now, so when did you shift over to Florida? And I'm wondering if you can then touch on a little bit about your expeditions traveling uh, with National Geographic Society through Florida, trekking over 2,000 miles what were some of the trials, tribulations uh, that you encountered during this incredible mileage that was covered? That's a good question. How did I make that turn? Um, towards the end of my Smithsonian work in Gabon, I had a chance to stay on and keep working with the Smithsonian in D.C. But during the previous couple years, every time I got on an airplane and left Florida for two or three months, I came home to see 
a subdivision on what used to be a cattle ranch or natural land. And in some ways it took looking back in my home state from halfway across the world to recognize how fast we were losing things. And also I started feeling this kind of tug towards home because there are probably a hundred photographers who would line up to take my place working with the Smithsonian in Africa, but there wasn't enough storytelling focused on the loss of our rural lands back home in Florida. So it was more on that principle that I decided that I was going to base in Florida, try to build my career in Florida, try to have an impact here at home. And the starting point to that journey was actually looking at Florida's ranch lands. I was thinking about starting a long-term focus at the beginning of the 30-year comprehensive Everglades restoration project, but the Everglades was getting pretty good attention. And there's an untold story in Florida's heartland where nearly one-fifth of the state by landmass was cattle ranch. And those also were the ones with the crosshairs on them for new developments. So arguably the ranch was the most pivotal or still is the most pivotal landscape in the state that has great consequences for how everything fits together. So I went into this, published a book in 2009 called Florida Cowboys Keepers of the Last Frontier. And that was my gateway into wild Florida. And during the journey of capturing the pictures, not just of the cultural heritage and the pioneer ranching families and the Seminole and Mikusuki people, but in the biodiversity <clears throat> that these lands were supporting. And on one ranch in 2006, when I was working on that project, I met a bear biologist named Joe Guthrie, who was a master's student from the University of Kentucky working at Archibald Biological Station. If you haven't been, it's an amazing place. It's kind of like a miniature Smithsonian in the central Florida scrub. Oh, I'll have to put it on and my bucket list. I have not been. No, it's an amazing place. And they would make a great, you know, there's probably 30 people who work there who would make great interviews for this, for this podcast. Okay, cool. Um, Good to know. Thank you. But Joe was putting, catching black bears, putting GPS collars on them and learning where they traveled through this mosaic of ranch lands and groves and some public lands on the Lake Wales Ridge in the Northern Everglades. So here I was, an eighth generation Floridian with a master's degree in ecology, with a, with a cattle ranch in the family who had no idea that in central Florida, we had a population of black bears living almost entirely on private ranches. Mm -hmm. And so the black bear became an emblem of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And I kind of focused in on that story uh, and that opened my eyes to ultimately founding the Florida Wildlife Corridor Project because the bears were moving large distances through a landscape that is you know, green on the satellite image, but in dozens of different ownerships. And one bear that Joe put the collar on in fall of 2009, in the summer of 2010, a bear called M34 went on a 500-mile walkabout. Wow. And it traveled from near Sebring, Florida, mm -hmm. up the Kissimmee chain of lakes, up the Lake Wales Ridge, over by Lakeland, all the way up to the headwaters of the Everglades, spent the night in the town of Celebration for two nights on the edge of I-4, skirted the southern edge of I-4 for several miles, presumably sensing the 500,000 acres of wilderness in the Green Swamp on the north side, but not having a safe passage to get there, came all the way back south, retracing its footsteps, went as far south and west as Babcock Ranch near Fort Myers. Wow. And then back and dropped its GPS collar on a cattle ranch in Glades County. Um, so these bears were telling a story about how these lands are connected. Yeah. And through the process, I myself connected with the existing science of wildlife corridors in Florida. And there's a professor at the University of Florida named Tom Hochter, mm -hmm. who is one of the authors of, or I call him the architect of the Florida Ecological Greenways Network. And that is a, that is a system it looks at landscape connections and how to keep all of our natural areas connected. It's based on the work of Reed, Reed Noss from University of Central Florida and their shared professor, Larry Harris, also from the University of Florida, who had written a book in the 1980s called The Fragmented Forest and was one of the forefathers of landscape connectivity in America. So like that's the academic lineage of the Florida Wildlife Corridor is coming out of those science minds. 
my contribution was recognizing that the science of the ecological greenways network was a long way from being in public conversation and planning committees. It wasn't, it wasn't a factor at the table. And that became shockingly clear in 2006 when there was a new toll road proposed that was going to go from Orlando straight to Naples. Right. And this was called the Heartland Parkway. Mm -hmm. And there's a great article in Florida Trend written by Gainesville's own Cynthia Barnett that was kind of an investigative journalism piece about the origins of this road. And the article talked about all types of corridors. It talked about transportation corridors. It talked about multimodal transportation corridors. It talked about economic development corridors, hurricane evacuation corridors, but conspicuously no mention of wildlife corridors. So here I was getting to know these bears and their wildlife corridor, thinking about a road that was going to come right through the same area and saying something's missing here. The most fundamental type of infrastructure, the green and natural infrastructure is not even in the conversation. And so that's what led me to propose naming a subset of the Ecological Greenways Network, the Florida Wildlife Corridor, so that we could have something that would make sense in a water in a more public conversation. Sure. Like you can visualize it much more when you put the term wildlife in there. And, and, we, and, the, and they are starting to be more, hopefully, I think, more in the conversation where people are thinking about uh, means and where they're putting either routes underneath major highways or I know there's the proposed one in California where they're putting it over is uh, a nice green space for animals to cross. So, uh, it, but I don't, I, I'm not sure how, how much it really is in the conversation of every, of everyday people. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really yeah. happy to have you on and, and share this, this information with our listeners and hopefully they can, they can help keep this conversation going. And so Carlton, I'm wondering if you can touch on, you have the bears, you see the bears and the problems. You create the Florida Wildlife Corridor Project. So what was the mission of the project and how did that then lead into the Path of the Panther project? So we knew that the Florida Wildlife Corridor existed from the science. You could see it from a satellite image, but we needed to tell the story and we needed to basically put the concept on the map with the stakeholders and with a wider audience. Having just come from work in Africa with the Smithsonian, I'd met a man named Mike Fay who worked for the Wildlife Conservation Society and National Geographic Society and had done the thing called the mega transect. And they had traveled nearly 2,000 miles on foot from the central part of the African Congo all the way out to the Atlantic coast in Gabon. And the three-part series in National Geographic and all the related advocacy helped inspire the president of Gabon to create 13 new national parks based on their campaign and their storytelling. Amazing. So as a somewhat naive and ambitious young Florida photographer, like that was the gold standard in my mind. As I was a conservation photographer, um, I wrote my master's thesis at the University of Florida on conservation photography. It was the first thesis on that emerging field and interviewed and studied all these heroes throughout time from Ansel Adams to William Henry Jackson and people who inspired the creation of national parks to Michael Nick Nichols, a photographer who had helped inspire these national parks in Gabon in the 21st century. And so, you know, that that's what we were thinking. And we wanted to try to increase the awareness, inspire the protection of this corridor while there was still time. Um, Lots of groups came together, the Nature Conservancy, Florida Wildlife Federation, Audubon of Florida, um, Conservation Florida, Defenders of Wildlife. We convened a group of folks that my colleagues had convened about the bear research, but to ask the question about this Florida Wildlife Corridor campaign. And so to help bring attention to the idea, I proposed an expedition in 2012, where we started in Everglades National Park and we trekked for 100 days and 1,000 miles following the way a bear or panther could still travel through the state, arriving to the Okefenokee Swamp at the Georgia-Florida line um, on Earth Day of 2012 in April. And so that was the beginning of the kind of awareness campaign. And this is trekking like on foot. Yes, we we, we did a lot of paddling on that trip too. We had 
yeah. multi-day paddle trips through the Everglades, St. John's River, different spots. Mm-hmm. Um, got on horses a couple of times cool. when we were lucky. Yeah. But all non-motorized transportation to to go the way a bear or panther can still travel. And what this expedition also showed us that this is this is a this is a corridor for people. And you know, we had to I think we camped on twenty nine different cattle ranches wow. during that first expedition. Mm-hmm. And we had to approach everybody and talk about their willingness to be part of a Florida wildlife corridor story. Of course. And it built a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration that there are so many people out there who, given the opportunity to save their land for the future, wanted to do that. And so we were trying to lift their stories as much as the wildlife that their land you know, takes care of. So we we, made, we did a book and a PBS film with the filmmaker Elam Stolfsis. And then in 2015, kind of worked to tell the rest of the story, which was starting at the Everglades headwaters near Orlando at the halfway point from the 2012 expedition, traveling another thousand miles following the best remaining wildlife corridor from central Florida around the Gulf Coast, Alabama. That expedition we did in 70 days because we mixed in some more bicycling to cover some more ground. But, you know, that makes up the kind of 2,000 miles of treks that were the biggest pieces, the biggest branches of the corridor. And, you know, we had, I think, really good success with the stakeholders and with the landowners and the people we connected with in helping strengthen the identity of the Florida Wildlife Corridor opportunity. That was 2015. At the end of that year, um, a couple of things happened, some serendipity, um, maybe some destiny, I'm not sure. Um, But I went to my editor at National Geographic, really excited about the second expedition. I said, I want to do a story about the Florida Wildlife Corridor for National Geographic magazine. And she said, well, I'm not sure we're interested in a story on a wildlife corridor, but we would be interested in a a story on an animal like the Florida panther. And you could tell the story of the corridor through the story of the panther. So that 15-minute conversation sent me on what became like a five-year-long quest to get it, do a story for National Geographic magazine about the Florida Wildlife Corridor through the eyes of the Florida panther. That same year, I got a one-day travel assignment from National Geographic Travel. It was actually a 10-day assignment to look at 10 parks and preserves in Southwest Florida, one of which was Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge. And so I'm like, well, I... I've been camera trapping in Africa. I've been camera trapping for black bears in central Florida. I can't do a picture of Florida Panther National Wildlife Refuge without trying to get a picture of a panther. Right. A picture is so pic- worth a thousand words. Exactly. <laughs> but I turned a one-day assignment into like literally a six-year-long project because in two months of camera trapping in the summer of 2015, I got a really nice picture of a Florida black bear staring at the camera and one kind of intriguing picture of a female Florida panther walking away from the camera. And she's actually, that that picture is in the introduction to my book. And it's like she was daring me to follow her into the Fakahatchee Strand, into the primordial swamps that gave the opportunity for the panther to still exist in the eastern United States. And so as I learned more, as I reconnected with the panther researchers, that's when I really started to see the panther is the ultimate emblem of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. And there's some reasons for that. For one, like I, like I mentioned a minute ago, the Florida panther is a puma. Um, it is the last breeding population of pumas east of the, east of the Mississippi River. There are about 200 in total existence predominantly isolated to the southern tip of Florida. They're a hopeful story because they're recovering from as few as 20 panthers some decades before to nearly 200 today. But to be considered recovered, to have genetic viability to exist into the future, there needs to be three or four times as many panthers spread across three times as much land. The only way that's going to happen is for panthers to reclaim historic territory further north in the state. And the Florida Wildlife Corridor is a lifeline 
for that recovery. And you might ask, why does a panther need so much land? Or how much land does a panther need? Um, a male panther has a home range of 200 square miles. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. So that's twice the size of Orlando or four times the size of Miami for a single adult male panther. And that's why South Florida, as it exists now, can only support the approximate 200 adult Florida panthers that are there today. But those male panthers and all panthers are really territorial. And so you're never going to get super high density of panthers. If you're a young male born south of the Clusatchee River, you're going to either get beat up or, or you're going to go find your own territory to the north. And so there have been male panthers there have been male panthers wandering the Florida Peninsula across the past couple decades. In fact, there was one panther shot by a hunter in Georgia near the Alabama border as far north as Atlanta 11 years ago. And that panther had a pit tag, and it was born in the Ocalacoochee Slough State Forest down in the Everglades. Wow. So it shows that they can make these distances, and there's still enough green space, or still wasn't enough connected green space to do that. The limiting factor for the panther's recovery and survival is female panthers. So while male panthers have been wandering the peninsula in relatively low density, there had not been a female panther documented north of the Clusahatchee River or north of Lake Okeechobee and Fort Myers since 1973. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. So literally... All of the breeding, any panther born east of the Mississippi River, any puma born east of the Mississippi River was born at like the literally southern tip of Florida. Pocket. Mm -hmm. That all changed in 2016 when scientists from the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission got photo evidence and a track of the first verified female north of the Clusahatchee River in 43 years. And I was one year into the Path of the Panther Project with the National Geographic Society working towards the magazine story um, when that big news happened. And they allowed me to put one of my camera traps not too far away from where they got that first picture. And after a year and a half, two years of trying, I got pictures of the first verified female north of the river being trailed by two Florida panther kittens. And so this was the first evidence of breeding panthers north of the Clusahatchee in my lifetime that I was able to bear witness to as a photographer working on this project for National Geographic. And it was enough of a moment that, that, that was, that's what crystallized in our minds that we needed to make a film about this story because, you know, they're, they're in that female panther in that first litter of kittens. You know, that's the hope the for the recovery of the species. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, she's featured in the book. She's, she's a main character in the film. One of the scientists who was, who first discovered her nicknamed her Babs because she lived at Babcock Ranch, um, which itself is super interesting because Babcock Ranch was a 98,000 acre cattle ranch that was sold a number of years back. 80% of the land went to the state of Florida and to the local counties to become a to become Babcock Ranch Preserve, a little less than 20% of the land went to a developer, Sid Kitson, to build the Babcock Ranch town. Half of the town of Babcock Ranch also has conservation. So, you know, something less than 10% of the total acreage is being developed as a new community. The vast majority is being saved. And interestingly, that first female panther north of the Clusatch in my lifetime set up her home range on the newly preserved land of Babcock Ranch State Preserve next to a new development of Babcock Ranch. And so it's really interesting how it's like those two different Floridas stacked together, but in a way that is actually working for the recovery of the species sure. in this case. Yeah. So super fascinating. Um, so, you know, I was so, I was so naive. I mean, like my wife will tell me or others that I'm not very realistic about things. Um, and it might be what allows me to do the things you do actually, actually chase a project like this for as long as, as long as it took. But, you know, it literally took five years to get enough high quality camera trap pictures to illustrate the story for national geographic. Um, if you look through the book or you look through the magazine story, 
is an average of two years of camera trapping to produce each of those images, whether it's the panther jumping over the swamp that's on the front of the book or a panther going under a wildlife underpass with a semi-trailer going above. That one took five years. Um, it was an extended effort. And the film ended up kind of following my obsession and my quest to get these pictures, but weaving together all these amazing Florida conservation heroes that we connected with along the way from a cattle rancher named Elton Langford, who's a 13th generation Florida rancher descended from Spanish who works at Babcock Ranch, to Betty Osceola, who's an environmental advocate and leader with the Miccosukee tribe and an airboat captain, um, to the scientists from the state agency and the veterinarians who are on the front lines of saving the panther. So it's the book, like the film, kind of weaves together all these different voices from the ranchers to the scientists to the Native Americans. And the panther is the connective tissue that weaves it all together. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Yeah, I mean, in Carlton, the book is absolutely stunning. The The photographs are just visually pleasing and incredible, and I'm thinking, like, was that taken with a camera trap? Was he was was he in a blind somewhere in, in the Everglades? And so it's just it's just such remarkable work. And like you said, it's this this six year healthy obsession, I would say. I don't know about what your wife would say, but healthy obsession of yours to get these photos and tell the story of the Panther and their past. So what do you hope readers will take from it? I hope they'll feel the hope for wild Florida. I mean, like it's too easy to forget living like most of us do on the coast or in our urban cores. It's easy to forget that Florida still has these vast wild places where panthers and black bears are still stalking through the forests. You know, I want people to leave with a sense of pride that this is our Florida and we have a chance to save it. I'd say Florida has some identity challenges. You know, so many people are born somewhere else and our wildest and most amazing places aside from the beach and the oceans are hidden in plain sight. You know, I'm sitting here in Tampa and unless I had been there on an expedition, I would have no idea that the green swamp is 20 or 30 miles away and it's the headwaters to four major rivers, including the Hillsborough River. It's connected to the Florida Wildlife Corridor, but it's hidden in plain sight. And if, if, if this was Denver, Colorado, you might never leave the urban core, but you can look out on a clear day and see the Rocky Mountains and know that that's the source of your water and that's where the wildlife live. And it has intrinsic value to you. And in Florida, where we're more topographically challenged, it takes, a, it takes storytelling and it takes other types of engagement to help bring these places into people's identity for our state. And so that's ultimately what I've been trying to do my whole career with past books with the Florida Wildlife Corridor Project. And I'm really excited because I believe that the Florida Panther can lift the story of these lands and these places to whole new audiences that we might not have reached before. Yeah. And now... So were all the photos in the book, were they all taken um, uh, a camera trap or were there or were some of them taken uh, of just a normal camera or drone or anything like that? The up close pictures of wildlife are mostly from camera traps. In all my years in the Florida woods, through all the expeditions, I've only seen a Florida panther with my own eyes twice and only once 
while holding a camera in my hands and able to capture a picture. Right. That photo is in the book and it was an electrifying experience to like be staring at a panther staring back at me after literally years of just seeing images of these ghosts on the back of my camera traps. So I did have that like exhilarating connection to the wild heart of Florida through her eyes as she stared at me that one time. But everything else is camera trap. And my, and my camera traps are basically creating a studio with a professional DSLR or mirrorless camera connected to multiple flashes, all in waterproof containers, and then using a motion detecting trigger, either a passive infrared detector or a LIDAR laser beam, some sort of invisible tripwire where the animal comes through, triggers the camera and flashes and basically takes its own picture. And in these, selfie, in these places, if you will. yeah, it's, it's, it's a very crafted selfie. I love it. And with a lot of odds stacked against you. Like if you look at the picture on the cover of the book in that particular location, which I sought out because it's where the trail narrowed down and you had the palms and the cypress trees and all the signature elements that would place that panther somewhere that was, could be nowhere else in the continental United States other than South Florida. And, and then looking for the angles and waiting and hoping for that moment. A panther was coming through that trail about once a month. It would come through about once every two months facing the direction of the camera because you have to show eyes to have any sort of intimacy or engagement. So, you know, half a dozen times a year, you're getting a panther picture. It might come once or twice a year with any amount of daylight where you can get some depth to the background. So, and then when that moment happens in a fraction of a second, a camera that's been sitting in the swamp for a few weeks potentially at that point since its last battery change has to work and everything has to fire in one of the harshest environments on the planet. So I was so conditioned to failure. Um, I'm laughing with you, but, but yes, it's, it's just No, incredible. no, it's like, like I was so conditioned to failure by, you know, two years into the project oh. when I actually got the picture that's on the, the cover here, cover of the book. It wasn't like a, you know, shouting from the rooftops, fist bumping the air like it should have been. It was more of a sigh of relief that it actually worked. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And it took a couple of days to sink in that, that we had a photograph that the world was going to see. And love. I mean, I'm looking at it right now. It's it's stunning. And I, I want the listeners to know, too, that, of course, on like social media and stuff, we'll see animals that are on, uh, well, especially me, because I follow a lot of different animal conservation groups, but we'll see these camera trap photos and they're either at nighttime and they're blurry or they're in black and white or, but I I'm here to say Carlton and his uh, team uses very, very high end equipment because I would not even know this is a camera trap. I mean, it's photo. It's just remarkable, remarkable, stunning. Thank you. You know, I had the pleasure to see some of these printed big for the first time a couple of weeks ago, we have an exhibit in Tallahassee at the 22nd floor of the Capitol through the end of this month. And it's going to be at the RA Gray building for for the two months following. But we have some these camera trap pictures printed five feet wide on the wall. And it's it's so cool to walk up and look at the detail of these animals jumping off, jumping off the wall at you. Yeah, it's just amazing. And now Carlton too, um, I want to talk about the path of the panther because it also highlights the importance of indigenous cultures and their relationship with the land. So I was wondering how you incorporated these themes into this book and your other books and what we can learn from them. One of my heroes from this project that we got to meet along the way is a woman named Betty Osceola. Um, and she is a member of the panther clan of the Miccosukee tribe. The panther clan is the is the biggest clan of both the Seminole and the Miccosukee people. There are some very rich cultural connections to the panther in the Miccosukee and the Seminole people. They have a clan system. It's a matrilineal family system where your clan identity is passed down from your mother. They have the otter clan, the wen clan, the bird clan, and some others. But the panther clan is the largest and most powerful clan of the Seminole and Miccosukee people. And they have a strong identity and connection with the panther. And that would go back to pre-Florida times when the Seminoles and Miccosukee were 
spread across the southern United States as members of the Creek Nation. You know, the panther, the puma would have been there in their in their culture as well. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the last population of pumas east of the Mississippi River and America's only unconquered tribe, as the Seminole tribe describes themselves, both coexisted and survived persecution in the southern tip of Florida, deep in the Everglades. It was outside the reach of where the Western generals were willing to go to wage wars on these people and to wipe out wildlife that were posed to be a threat. And so against all odds, the panther persevered and that connection, that unconquered connection from the Seminole and Miccosukee people, you know, they share this landscape. And it's from that backdrop deep in the heart of the Everglades that the panther is staging its recovery and its resurgence. And my hope, and one of the things we want to try to motivate through the film and through the book, is that this is not just the South Florida panther. This is the Florida panther. And if we want the panther to endure, if we want the lands of the Florida Wildlife Corridor to endure, we need to have a culture of coexistence where we welcome panthers back to their historic territory throughout Central Florida, North Florida, and even beyond. Yeah. And it's a remarkable opportunity. There's there's one of the ranchers who's photographed and quoted in the book is a man named Kerry Lightsey. He and his family are multi-generational ranchers out of Polk County and ranches throughout the Northern Everglades region. They're, they're real role models for me and so many in the ranching community and environmental community because they put 90% of their land under conservation easement where it will never be developed. And so when scientists at FWC got evidence of that first female panther north of the Clusahatchee River, I called Carrie Lightsey and said, Carrie, what does this mean for you as a cattle rancher in the Northern Everglades to have breeding populations of panthers coming back to these same places? And I was, I was serving a camera trap in the swamp that day, the same spot from the, from the book cover image. And I was servicing a camera trap in the swamp set my phone on the log on speakerphone and I'll never forget what Carrie said. He's like, Carlton, the Panther is going to have to help us save Florida. And his voice kind of echoed out through the swamp and he's like, because it's going to help people understand why we need to save these last large wild places. And so that's the thesis of the whole effort is if we follow the story of the Panther, it's going to show us what we need to do not just to save the wildlife corridor for panthers and other wildlife, but to save the green space that's needed for people and show us what we need to do to basically save ourselves. Well, yeah, and um, the title of the book, Path of the Panther, New Hope for Wild Florida, Carlton, talking about the hope, and as you mentioned, a lot of it here, there is a lot, and I think our my new motto is save the panther, save Florida. Uh what do you envision Florida wildlife corridors to look like in 10, 20 years from now? What are some of the challenges? How should we address them? And then can you touch on the hopeful uh, Florida Wildlife Corridor Act from 2021? Yes. Um, so this is, I'd say, one of the biggest accomplishments that I've been able to contribute to in my career is the passage of the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act in 2021. Remember that toll road I was telling you about in 2006 called the Heartland Parkway? Yeah, from Orlando to Naples. Mm -hmm. Well, in 2019, three toll roads, including one with a very similar route from Orlando to Naples, were being studied by and proposed by the Florida legislature. That was the same time we were just getting the first pictures of the female panther at Babcock Ranch with her kittens. And then here comes a new toll road that could cut straight into her territory. So it was a it was kind of a galvanizing moment for me to rec to recognize that if we don't get the Florida Wildlife Corridor designated in state law, it doesn't stand a chance to persevering 
in our planning processes and in the actual land protection. So that was kind of the big part of the impetus for the timing of the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act. Now, you know, I had founded the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation with colleagues from the original expeditions, Mallory Likes Demet and Joe Guthrie, and the Corridor Foundation had been doing great work advocating for the corridor and had a plan to, we used to talk about recognition, you know, awareness and recognition, designation as kind of a next step in protection. And we were in that kind of awareness phase, but we hadn't clicked into the designation phase. And so seeing the new toll road come was kind of a now or never moment. I went to the National Geographic Society, proposed the Path of the Panther impact campaign. Um, Tori Linder joined our team as an impact producer to manage the Path of the Panther impact campaign. And we developed a, a different short film called Saving the Florida Wildlife Corridor with National Geographic's Impact Story Lab. They were able to present directly to the Florida legislature to educate and inspire about the opportunity that the corridor represented. And my first feature story in National Geographic magazine was published in April 2021. At the same time, the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act was being considered. So we were able to distribute National Geographic magazines to all the lawmakers. And it was it was such a hopeful moment because by helping give these lands a cohesive story through the Florida Wildlife Corridor, elevated by the character of the Florida Panther, there was unanimous bipartisan support for the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act. And to see the way the story could bring people together and have this real shared sense of purpose for balancing out the economy and the ecology of Florida, you know, that's, that's the energy that we've been trying to build ever since. And, you know, since the Wildlife Corridor Act, there's been $850 million of new conservation funding allocated towards easements and protection in the Florida Wildlife Corridor. There's another four or $500 million being considered right now, you know, for this next fiscal year. So, we will be looking at significantly more than a billion dollars of progress and commitment towards protecting the corridor led by the leaders of Florida. You know, it, it's been on their initiative and, and their leadership. You know, the, the Florida Wildlife Corridor, since the passage of the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, has gone from a story to a, an official place that belongs to all Floridians. And so the hope now is that we can use the Panther film and the Panther book and all the work of partners to try to grow that movement to help protect this corridor in Florida, but also show what's possible. Because if we can do it here in Florida with 130 million annual visitors and 22 million residents and a thousand people moving here a day, we can do this throughout the country and throughout the world. Absolutely. I mean, you answered my next question. I was going to ask you, Carlton. So how do you hope that your work as photographer, explorer, conservationist, and author, it's clearly impacting Florida uh, through all your diligence and honestly, blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, how, do, how do you hope your work impacts the world? Well, to me, my world is Florida. Um, you know, this is like, there's a, economic study done recently by the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation and Live Wildly Foundations and others um, by McKinsey that projects that we need to save 900,000 acres of the corridor by 2030 to have a chance. Okay. And so that's, that's the end point for the story is, you know, us being, me being able to take my kids on a thousand mile expedition 20 years from now and still be able to walk from the Everglades to Georgia across a connected habitat corridor. Um, and so, you know, that, that work is here and we are seeing a movement across the country where wildlife corridors are becoming a framework for land conservation. Um, it's, I'm thankful that Florida has been a leading example in that effort, mm -hmm. but Tremendous efforts by groups like the Nature Conservancy and Center for Landscape Conservation and Wildlands Network and many others who are 
getting legislation introduced and passed in other states from Colorado to California to Virginia. Um, and so my vision and hope is that there will be regional place-based corridors built on consensus and built on story that can layer together to protect a connected network of land throughout our country. And I think the wildlife corridor through our experience here, it's a way to take what could be a divisive issue and make it a bipartisan solution. And the framework should work in Georgia, it should work in Texas, it should work in the Carolinas. And in fact, I think it's the best way that we're going to reach the global landscape conservation goals of protecting 30% of the planet by 2030 or protecting half the earth, land and oceans by the year 2050. What scientists say we need to do to save balance for life on earth. That's not going to work as well if it's just a top-down anonymous conservation idea called 30 by 30 or 50 by 50. But if it's the assimilation of regional place-based corridors, like an Appalachian corridor mm -hmm. combined with the Yellowstone to Yukon corridor, combined with the Florida wildlife corridor, potentially a Gulf Coast regional corridor, then you get the building blocks of protection that can actually get this thing done for the long term. Yeah. And now, Carlton, for the Florida wildlife corridor, how many acres have been preserved or safe, if you will, and then how much more is needed? Is it like 50-50 or where are we at with that and what are the goals? That's a really good question. I should have defined this at the top of the show. Um, the Florida Wildlife Corridor, as defined in the Florida Wildlife Corridor Act, is 18 million acres. That's about half the state of Florida by landmass. Of those 18 million acres, 10 million acres are already permanently protected, mostly as public lands, some conservation easements. So those are the protected areas. Then the remaining 8 million acres are what we call the opportunity area. That's where you still have the compatible land use, the green space, the, which is often a cattle ranch or a forestry and timber operation, or even in some cases, orange groves. Um, it's the connective tissue that holds these other places together. There's no assumption that we're going to protect all 8 million of those acres, but we have to protect a substantial proportion of them to keep everything else connected. And that's where that prioritization comes in. There's just shy of a million acres, about 900,000 acres that needs to be protected by the end of this decade to help balance out the more than a half a million acres projected to be lost by development during that same time frame. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's going to take substantial investment. It's going to take that $500 million a year level of investment by the state legislature to be matched by equal amounts from federal and private to keep the progress going and help steer the development closer to existing urban cores and away from the most sensitive lands. And, you know, it's, it's a race against time because property values are shooting up and agricultural landowners are having a tough time holding on and continuing to do what they do. Like, I believe there's really not much future for agriculture in Florida without conservation. And the big moment we have right now is that there are still farmers and ranchers representing millions of acres of the Florida Wildlife Corridor who are on list looking to conservation as a potential solution to keep doing what they do. And so what the Florida Wildlife Corridor funds can do now is empower those landowners, empower those people to keep protecting and taking care of those lands for future generations and very efficiently help balance Florida's conservation and Florida's development. Yeah. Wow. Well, no, that's, that, that really helps give me a visual on where we've been and where we need to go. And listening to your story and just how much work and time and energy and passion and talent you've put in, not only, of course, into the book, but just in your, your career in general. Carlton, I was hoping that you could give some advice for someone that wants to work in the area of wildlife photography or conservation or corridor science. Uh, what would you advise them on? My biggest advice is focus on telling stories. 
I think it took me a little bit longer to learn that coming up out of the ecology and science background. I was doing a lot of pretty pictures, um, but it wasn't necessary. It wasn't in the beginning necessarily storytelling. And so you want to be able to communicate about an issue and tell a story with your pictures. One of the best ways to do that and the best ways to make a difference for conservation is to team up with local conservation organizations. You know, when I, when I wrote my thesis on conservation photography, there were some themes that emerged and none of this, none of these big successes occurred in isolation. It's not some photographer going out and saving the world. It's a photographer going out, teaming up with local conservation organizations and local stakeholders and illustrating and energizing a story that together all those people can use to help save the world. And so whether you're in Florida or somewhere else, I guarantee there's a local chapter of the Nature Conservancy or another land trust who is fighting to save those places and they need their stories told. And so that's where you can find amazing synergies, team up with them. They're on the front lines. They'll give your imagery and your storytelling a higher degree of relevance and your storytelling and imagery will help lift their work to higher levels of impact. So I think that's one of the recipes for success. Um, and whether you're doing it as a still photographer, like I've done for most of my focus, or whether you're doing this in filmmaking and other forms of emerging media, it's, it's the underlying story and it's telling that story through the eyes of the people who are on the front lines of saving the places that kind of gives it the staying power and gives it the impact. Yeah. And now that's, that's a great advice. It's always starting local and there's always a lot going on in your community at home, even though you, there's of course stuff internationally that looks wonderful or that you might want to be a part of. There's always a lot going on at home and it's a great way to make connections. Uh, conservation takes a village. Uh, there's much that can be done that I always encourage uh, people and students that of course, the biology and the and the ecology is a huge component of it. Uh, we need more people uh, in the arts, in the literature, and uh, just really in marketing and, and different media working towards that goal of conservation. So there's there's lots of ways to get involved. That's for sure. And local local is a great way to go. And absolutely. And Carlton, speaking of getting involved with conservation. What is the best way that someone listening to this podcast can help protect Florida ecosystems and the Florida panther? What what can they do if they can't, yeah, if they're if they don't live locally um, or if they just want to be more involved? We've developed pathofthepanther.com as a resource where people can take action for Florida panthers and the Florida Wildlife Corridor. One of my goals is to now put the story to work in Florida and in the world. So we have the new film coming out on National Geographic and Disney Plus on April 28th. Stay tuned with us at pathofthepanther.com to get exact details on those listings. Watch the trailer there for the film now and help spread the word because I've been working my whole career in Florida to be able to have the story of the Florida Wildlife Corridor packaged up in this way with a book and a film from National Geographic that I think is our best chance in a long time to get widespread public engagement around the Florida Wildlife Corridor and the model it represents for our country. And so that's, you know, we need help to get the word out. We, we're also raising funds to develop educational curriculum and interactive exhibits we want every middle school and high schooler in the state of Florida to see this film. So there's lots of ways you can help us keep pushing this story into action. Yeah, absolutely. And Carlton, we will for sure be uh, talking about Path of the Panther, New Hope for Wild Florida, the book. And then, of course, uh, I'm encouraging all listeners to check out Path of the Panther, the movie that's going to be released on Disney Plus on April 28th. And Right now, too, super easy. You can just go to thepathofthepanther.com and look for updates, what's happening. If you do want to donate money or get involved or look for local exhibits, just tons of great information on that website. And so we will share all of that, of course, on our social media platforms and on our website, allcreaturespodcast.com. 
But lastly, Carlton, I was wondering, are there any social media platforms, whether it's Facebook or uh, Instagram, TikTok, that we uh, can also uh, follow you and your work at? Yes, thank you. Um, you can follow my work at Carlton Ward, C-A-R-L-T-O-N-W-A-R-D. That's on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Path of the Panther on all of those platforms. I'm also a contributor to the National Geographic Instagram feeds where you'll see some of these posts come through about once a week. Perfect. Oh, I love that. And that's a, a great way, too, to stay updated and stay connected on what's happening with the Path of the Panther both the book, New Hope for Wild Florida, and of course, a documentary. And Carlton, my last question is, how can our listeners get their hands on this amazing, visually stunning conversation piece book that's uh, right here behind me? I'm loving it. How, how can our listeners find that? Is it on Amazon? Or uh, if you could tell me a little bit more about that. The book goes on sale officially on May 2nd, and it's available for pre-order now where most book, you know, anywhere books are sold, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, and other spots. If you go to pathofthepanther.com, there's a link to the book section where we link to a lot of these different retailers. And also stay tuned to us through social media because I'll be showing up for some book signing events and presentations in different parts of the state through this um, spring, summer, and into the fall. Yeah, and I actually saw too that you have a, a virtual chat coming up, like on May twenty fifth. Yeah, we were, I'm, do, I'm doing doing a um, fireside chat with a group called um, First Climate Bank of Florida. That's what um, it is. But, mm -hmm. Yeah, there'll be lots of different ways we're getting the word out. Um, and yeah, just check in with pathofthepanther dot com, and chances are we'll be screening the film or signing the book somewhere close to you. Awesome, Carlton. I'm smiling from ear to ear, listening to your stories, your work, your conservation efforts, and just really feeling hope for the panther and hope for wild Florida and hope for these wildlife corridors. Because if we save the panther, we save Florida. And so to all the listeners out there, please share this podcast with, uh, with anyone and everyone that uh, loves wildlife and nature, because there's so much to learn. I'm listening to this conversation of Carlton, and there's a lot of hope. And I think that's what we need to stay motivated and to, and to keep this going and to keep it growing. So, Carlton, I, I want to reach through the computer and give you a virtual hug. I mean, I feel very connected. I, I feel really excited. Um, I know that I'm going to pick up a couple extra copies for my family members of The Path of the Panther, New Hope for Wild Florida, to give away this summer um, to get people understanding how beautiful it is here because all my Michiganders uh, up north, they, they still don't understand why I'm in Florida. And this book just pretty much says it all. The beautiful flora and fauna, subtropical, and of course, panthers. So it's a great conversation piece. Visual representation is just incredible. So I appreciate your six years of diligent work, setting those camera traps, checking them. Tons of failure. I appreciate I'm a scientist and a professor, so I appreciate tons of failure to get, you know, one or two things right. So thank you for your time today and thank you for creating this beautiful book. And I look forward to seeing the film. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm not, not sure this will fit for your for your uh, podcast, but it's I, it, as a storyteller, you know, it's my role to be a spokesperson for these places. But it's important to communicate that it takes a huge team and a huge network of partners to deliver a project like this. And so I have tremendous gratitude to everybody on our team at Wildpath, all the camera trap technicians that have helped maintain and support these cameras, our impact producers, our communications team, the filmmakers at Grizzly Creek Films who made this film. And this book is dedicated to my wife, Susie, and our three children, Eldridge, Nell, and Carlton, who gave me the latitude and space to chase this story. And it is really hard to be away from them. They're, you know, they're five, seven, and nine. And, you know, they're the motivation for why I want to see a Florida in balance in a Florida with wild places where panthers still travel through the forest. Um, but it's, it's, it's come... It's come at a price of being away from them a lot. And so 
you know, during this next chapter, I'm excited to be closer to them and bring them with me to see more of these places that we have a chance to save together. Oh, I love that. And I, I have a nine, six and two year old. So maybe we'll do that thousand mile trek together when they get a little bit older and can stay in a kayak <laughs> safely. <laughs> yeah. They, they, or they can paddle the boats for us. Now you're talking, point. Carlton. I like where you're going with that. So, well, and once again, yeah, of course, a huge thank you to you. But yes, um, a, an extended virtual hug too to all of Carlton's team and his family because it does. It takes a village. Uh, there's a lot of work and time and synergies, as you mentioned, that, that go into uh, to creating a project like this. Uh, and it's all it's everybody working together because they want to save the panther and save Florida. And it's going to take a communal effort of like-minded people to, to, to keep this thing going. So, uh, so yes. Yeah, so, well, thank you so much. And it was a pleasure meeting you. I'm super excited to not only watch the, uh, watch the film, but then also of course, too, to, to follow up with you and see uh, what your, what your next adventures are and, and how I can help get more involved with uh, the conservation efforts and activism here locally in Florida. So I, uh, I, I look forward to staying in touch. I do as well. Thank, thank you very much. Um, and one last thing that you, you can just put in the text if it doesn't work in the words, but this book was um, underwritten by, you know, the Path of the Panther book was underwritten by generous grants from the National Geographic Society and the Live Wildly Foundation that made it possible to tell a story that needs to be told and that hopefully lots of people will connect with. That's Thank you for having me on All Creatures. I'm so excited to share the story of the Florida Panther and the Florida Wildlife Corridor with your audiences and look forward to staying in touch. Awesome. Thank you, Carlton. Bye-bye. Bye. Talk to you soon.